Web3 with me is a discussion style podcast about the ins and outs of Web 3.0, hosted by Zach French, known as Off Edge in the verse. From crypto to NFTs, DAOs to DeFi, we cover the abstract philosophical promises and the new business models enabled in this new decentralized world. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform or watch the show on YouTube. Thanks and enjoy. Zach French is a bar certified attorney and nothing expressed by Zach during Web3 with me shall be considered legal advice. All the opinions expressed by Zach and his guests are solely their own opinions. All content in Web3 with me is for informational purposes only. Zach and his podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed during Web3 with me. Thanks so much for tuning in to Web3 with me. It is our mission here to educate, and we realize that some basics of Web3, like WTF is a digital wallet, might be helpful for you to know. We will be releasing a series of short videos on YouTube and Reels to help cover these high-level topics. We hope they're useful for us and feel free to leave us feedback. My guest today is Ian Andrews, Chief Marketing Officer of Chainalysis. As CMO of Chainalysis, he is helping scale the company to enable governments and financial organizations to safely adopt cryptocurrency. He is also the host of the Public Key Podcast, where he sits down with thought leaders in the space to discuss emerging trends and opportunities in blockchain technology, how policymakers in the world are approaching crypto regulations, data-driven insights into the latest trends in crypto economics and crime, and breaking news in the crypto market. Previous to Chainalysis, he ran marketing at Tanzu, the modern apps portfolio at VMware. Before that, he was CMO at Pivotal from launch in 2013 to IPO in 2018 to acquisition by VMware in 2019 for $2.7 billion. Ian is one of the most accomplished guests I've had, and more importantly, he communicates so clearly the current state of the Web3 ecosystem and where we need to go to move it forward. LFG, baby, let's start vibing. Welcome to the show, Ian. Thank you so much for having me, Zach. Excited to chat. Yeah, we were chatting a little bit uh, off the mic, uh, if you will, uh, before this about our unique connection through an individual named Clinton Reeves. Um, so I've I've followed your journey from Pivotal uh, beyond and your ability to take very complicated topics and explain them in a way to the, the general public that is actually like stomachable, if that's a word. Um, so yeah, I'm excited to, to, to get into it. Um, I usually start these with the audience getting to know you a little bit. Uh, I want to know all about your background and your founding story and what makes Ian, Ian. Um, so feel free to start wherever you'd like. Yeah, absolutely. So my role today, uh, chief marketing officer at a company called Chainalysis. Uh, we're a, a software company in the crypto space and we build technology for, uh, you know, everybody from law enforcement, financial regulatory to pretty much every crypto business on the planet is is a customer of ours at this point. Um, I've been here about two years. Before this, I was totally an outsider to crypto. Uh, so I've been on this amazing journey of, of learning and exploration. Um, a lot of my my efforts with my own podcast, Public Key, is is... I realized I was having all sorts of questions about, hey, what's that thing? Or how does it work? Or who's really doing this? Or why are they doing it? And I was having these dis discussions in private, kind of one-on-one. -on -one. I was like, hey, we, we should share this with the rest of the world. Because if I'm asking these questions, you know, maybe I can 
help help some other people along who maybe don't have access to the same uh, same guests. Um, so before I got into this, I was at a company called Pivotal for almost nine years. Uh, we uh, spun the company out of EMC and VMware way back in 2013, uh, grew the business up, took it public in, in 2018, um, and uh, and then and then. Uh, sold it back to VMware actually at the end of 2019. So uh, Michael so, Dell incestual kind of relationship there. <laughs> uh, that is right. Uh, Michael, Michael is fantastic at playing all sides of a transaction to, uh, to significant profit and gain. Uh, <laughs> and, and before that I've worked at a bunch of other, uh, you know, exciting, although maybe not quite as successful as one would hope startups uh, across the software infrastructure space. So, Companies like Aster Data. I was at Opsware. If anyone's read Ben Horowitz's book, The Hard Thing About Hard Things, I I uh, lived through that. Played a, a minor role in in that uh, that caper, uh, which was a lot of fun. That's awesome. That's awesome. So I guess you've you've been in in product marketing. Is that kind of where you got your start in terms of marketing? Was was on the product side, or were you did you start somewhere else? You know, I actually started uh, where our our mutual friend Clinton Reeves when he worked for me as a sales development rep. Oh, really? So I I went to University of North Carolina as an undergraduate. Uh, like a lot of people coming out of college, kind of didn't really know what I wanted to do. I'd studied economics and political science. There wasn't an obvious career path there. I didn't have a, a strong urge to you know, go get a, a master's or PhD in that area and be a researcher. Uh, and and kind of uh, through a series of coincidences and connections, ended up getting um, offered a job as an SDR at a, at a pretty early stage startup. And for people historical, I'll date this for you. It was, it was May of 2000. I graduated on a Saturday and then went to work on a Monday uh, yeah, this was as the, uh, the dot-com <laughs> bubble was, was bursting. Uh, one of my favorite websites from back in the day, uh, was called fuckedcompany.com. Uh, and, and for people just to contextualize this a little bit, if you didn't live through it, uh, so many companies were going bust, you know, layoffs, uh, total shutdown, running out of capital that, uh, somebody a little bit you know, like an internet troll, but it, w- it was actually real content started a news forum that was just listing these. Oh, and, and so, you know, well before Twitter, doom scrolling on eftcompany.com was, uh, was, was something I was doing back in those days. I can totally see the tagline. Don't get fucked. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and it was, uh, you know, I think that experience has helped maybe, uh, steal me a little bit for the ups and downs of the crypto market, uh, but, uh, but yeah, so I started out as an SDR. I was pretty good at it. I became a, a quota carrying salesperson, uh, pretty successful at that uh, through a few companies. And then um, at, at one point I started complaining about uh, the, the marketing organization at a company I worked at. And I complained loudly enough that at some point they finally got fed up and said, well, if you're so smart and you think you can do it better, here you go. <laughs> That's a very similar situation for, for some people we know too. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so be, be careful what you critique, right? You may yeah. be asked to fix it. Um, but it turned out to be an incredible opportunity for me. Uh, I, and, and I was lucky enough to, to inherit some really talented folks who helped me learn the things that I, I didn't know about uh, marketing hands-on. 
because I'd been kind of an outsider coming from the sales organization. So, you know, it's kind of like looking at a house from the street, like you get the, an idea of how big it is. And maybe you think, you know, what goes on inside, but until you step through the front door, it's, uh, it's all a bit of a mystery. Um, yeah. And then I, I became CMO at, at Pivotal like 2015. And then, you know, it's been, it's been marketing nonstop the last seven years. Yeah, it's funny. Um, you know, the whole aim of this show is that uh, Web3 has a big perception problem and that's rooted in poor marketing. Yeah. Um, so maybe this is my version because I started as an SDR in tech uh, of complaining very loudly. So who knows? <laughs> maybe I'll be in marketing one day. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think we're all in marketing, you know, there's uh, my, my colleagues in sales like to say, you know, the whole, the whole company's in sales. And I think we're all storytellers, right? Like this, this is the way things get communicated, right? It's uh, it, the technical detail and the jargon and the, the shilling that's kind of like inherent in this web three space. At the end of the day, it's uh, the the stuff that tends to stick around for a while is is the really good stories, and so I think it's incumbent on all of us to to be a little bit better at explaining, um, you know, why why is this interesting to you and me? Like, why why did we show up here? Why do we spend our time on this versus the kind of infinite world of other things we could be doing? I get that at the dinner table with my family every night. Totally. <laughs> my uh, my kids are actually pretty funny about this. They. Um, uh, they, they've become fond of telling people that dad works in imaginary money. <laughs> I love that magical internet money. That's right. For, for crypto. <laughs> yeah. And I, uh, it, you know, I really throw them off though. When I look at them and I go, Hey, you know what? All money's imaginary. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> you want, you want to see your head blow off? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And then, it's all uh, a social contract. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I, uh, I think people, um, you know, there's this huge opportunity as, as marketers to help influence where the space goes. And I think the next wave of adoption, right? Like there's relatively few people who really understand what's going on in, in crypto. I think today, uh, it's a big part of what we work hard on at Chainalysis is trying to bring a, an accessible narrative to everybody that's kind of on the edges or outside of the ecosystem. Yeah. It makes sense. I mean, there's, there's this, there's a, there's a public perception, right? The, the, the sentiment of the market, um, which is rooted in things that will evoke the most emotion, which, uh, is fantastical sales and fantastical fails, basically. <laughs> Maybe I'll turn, coin that term a little bit. I like that actually. <laughs> um, but you know, it's, it's, it's also like my mission here is to like bring the practical side of this, because I feel like there's this tension in the narrative between the early adopter developer folks that are decentralist maxis and the people that are fighting for mass adoption because they realize that the technology can provide a lot of new opportunities, uh, in ways that it couldn't before. Yeah, I, I think this is a really interesting point. I mean, Chainalysis is in, in a interesting position in the ecosystem where that uh, Bitcoin maximalist, you know, the people that got really attracted to cryptocurrency primarily because they saw it as a way to uh, upend the current financial system, remove intermediaries, you know, I think very much reactionary to the failures of the 08 financial crisis and the, the harm that caused to so many people around the world. And, 
and I think core in that audience is this belief that, uh, you know, kind of libertarian values meet uh, very high privacy advocacy. And, and I'm actually on board with that. Like, I think privacy is a good thing. I, I just had, you know, got one of those data breach notices in the mail. So yet again, for the, I don't know, at this point, the hundredth time, my social security number has been uh, stolen by someone on the dark web who is now selling it for a few cents, I guess. <laughs> yeah. uh, so I, I actually really like privacy. The, the, the point of conflict with that audience and worldview, though, is that privacy wins over all else. And I just can't get on board with that. Like, you know, we get involved in some pretty horrendous criminal activity where there's a Bitcoin intersection point. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the more famous stories, actually, there's a great book that just came out. I'll give him a plug written by a guy named Andy Greenberg, mm. who's uh, one of the staff writers at Wired. Uh, the new book is called Tracers in the Dark, and it, it covers the kind of 2014 to 2017, 2018 period of cryptocurrency and some of the more notorious takedowns. And mm -hmm. so he goes into ex extended detail on a on a case uh, that uh, the IRS CI kind of led the um, led the investigation on called Welcome to Video. Mm -hmm. Uh, and this was a, uh, you know, child sexual abuse material website that was run out of Korea. Uh, but the customers were all around the world, right? You know, on the internet, there are no borders. Um, and it was discovered, like the, the way you gained access to this site uh, was paying in cryptocurrency. And it was particularly nasty because in order to be a member, you not only consumed, you had to provide. So there was like, just terrible, right? Yeah. And you look at something like that and you're like, you know what? I'll give up some privacy to stop that. Exactly. And, I, and to me, that's inarguable. Like th there's no like uh, position that I think a reasonable person can take where they say, well, Chainalysis shouldn't exist because uh, yes, you were able to stop that, but privacy is more important. So therefore your technology should not, should not be in the world. Like I, I just can't get on board with that. But the good thing that I would say about this, this narrative is like the number of people I think who hold that, that extreme worldview are, are actually an increasingly small part of the ecosystem you and I now both work in. Um, and I think there's the, there's the tension too, of, people wanting the privacy and the very nature of the blockchain, while it's not connected to personal information always, all of it is public. Yeah. I mean, if you go on Etherscan and you know what you're looking for, you can find it. That's right. Right. You can find right. all these transactions, uh, which is probably a lot of what Chainalysis does. <laughs> they just do it better than everybody else. Um, but it's like it, when people make that argument, you're kind of that that's kind of always where I point them. It's like, well, you're actually putting all of your activity out there. I think the more sophisticated argument is what happens when determining what someone does and the quality of their actions uh, has nothing to do with their personal information. It just has to, it has to do with the transactions that they took a part in. Yeah. Right. Um, and then that gets into a much bigger use case for the space, which is the fact that you can, start to reduce the amount of friction in using your identity to 
do certain things, right? Mortgages. Uh, I think one of the examples that I've heard you give before is like the bar, right? Like going to the bar and why do I have to give you my home address and my birthday to get into a bar? Like my age hasn't changed, right? (laughs) Like, is there not a way to use the blockchain and some sort of zero knowledge proof for something like that, uh, that would allow you to just prove, Hey, I'm over 21. Right. Because that's the only piece of information they really care about. I uh, completely agree. I think the the identity use case to me is is almost certain to be the next big thing coming coming to blockchain um, after cryptocurrency, like finan- b- broadly financial transactions. Um, but I'll, I'll actually tell you an interesting story. So I had the opportunity to interview the founding team from a crypto exchange called Busha. Uh, Busha is the largest exchange operating from Nigeria. Okay. And, you know, I think that there's an on, uh, always on narrative of like, oh, global remittances are really kind of broken. Crypto could solve this problem. We should all like really want to do that. And, and I don't know about you, but like global remittances is not a problem that personally affects me. I think probably mm-hmm. a lot of people listen to this podcast I would be surprised if a, if a majority of them have sent money abroad before. So it's sort of hard to imagine. So I've always been searching for like, okay, what's the problem makes sense. It's worthy of solving, but it's not widely felt. What else can we imagine out there where crypto is, is adding value today? Um, and so the team at Busha, I didn't, I, I've never spent any time in Nigeria. So it was an interesting learning experience. For I actually me. have just have you? a side note. <laughs> awesome. Well, maybe you can confirm some of this for me. <laughs> one, one of the challenging things about uh, living and working there is apparently that the government capital controls are extensive. So if you want to withdraw hard currency, uh, you may have to wait up to a month, um, particularly if you're looking for dollar denominated currency. And if you've ever bought anything abroad, like most transactions are priced in dollars. Like you and I, let's say we decide we want to start a widget business, you know, like we would go create a website on Shopify, you know, sign up for a merchant account, uh, get a shipping account. We'd go contract some manufacturing facility somewhere in Southeast Asia to build us widgets. They'd need to, you know, we'd have to pay them some money to buy raw materials and then manufacture our widgets and ship them to us. Uh, it's actually pretty easy to do that. Like you and I could have our widget business up and running probably in a month, inventory in hand, maybe drop shipping to customers early next year. Thanks, Shopify. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Shopify solves like 90% of these problems. Yeah. Uh, even the contract manufacturing piece is way easier than it used to be. Like we don't need to physically travel to Vietnam or Laos or Southeast Asia. Like there's brokers who kind of do all this now. If you're in Nigeria instead of the United States, though, you've got to pay all these people in dollars. Like their local currency is generally not accepted outside of the country. You're now waiting a month to get access to any of that currency, to get it through the official currency exchange system. And so imagine that, like you've got 30 what days. What if the price changes? Turns. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, wait another just, month? <laughs> it just becomes completely impractical to, to have sort of any international commerce, uh, which in this kind of globalized world that we now live in is necessary. And so in in that economy, Bitcoin suddenly completely changes the game or, or stable coins, you know, something like USDC or Tether is is a complete game changer because now you can transfer that asset anywhere in the world in a few minutes uh, and 
and you can actually transact in it as well. And and this bypass of of kind of a broken financial system, uh, I think, is incredibly high impact. Um, and so I, I think we've got a lot of room to run in the the core, like solving some of the rough edges of the the global financial system. Um, it's sometimes hard to see that from where we sit in the United States, but I think as soon as you start looking abroad, it, it's massive. Well, just like what you said with remittances, it's not widespread felt here by mm-hmm. us, right? Mm-hmm. We are Native um, Native Americans. Um, <laughs> I think not I, quite. Not quite, but. <laughs> We grew up here, uh, yeah, we're born yeah. here, yeah. Uh, and, and that's not a, an issue that, that we feel, but there are a lot uh, a lot of these issues that were the early, you know, running issues for Bitcoin, right, are now coming back into the fray in a way. I feel like enterprise blockchain is getting this second run at things, because I think initially 2015, 2016, 2017, you know, that's when IBM was getting into blockchain and, and like all these larger companies were getting into it, but the market wasn't ready for it, right? They're like, what is a blockchain? Now it's like, who you said blockchain, but what I like to see is people like yourself and other marketers who are explaining it by what it does, not what it is. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, that makes all the difference in the world. <laughs> I think there's some really interesting folks out there. Uh, I, I had the opportunity to meet the CEO of Provenance Chain mm-hmm. uh, recently, and it, their entire platform is built to help traditional financial institutions tokenize real world assets and and sell them. Um, and this this could be a financial product. It could be an actual physical good or service in the in the world. And and so as much as you know, we I think have been anticipating things like you know spot Bitcoin ETFs or retail trading coming out of some of the the traditional banks. Like Fidelity made big news a couple of weeks ago, introducing um, uh, Bitcoin inside your four hundred one k accounts. Um, I, I actually think what Provenance is attempting to enable is much more interesting. Uh, well, that's because, the biggest picture. That's the most abstract view, which is how yeah. do we transfer assets more efficiently? And the blockchain is more efficient, though, you know, some may argue it's slower or what have you. Right. Um, it is a more efficient way to transfer assets. We just have to find a practical way to get them on chain. Exactly. And I think that's actually the hurdle that I expect to see a lot of people focus on you know, next year or the year after is how, how do we connect something like my house into a tokenized representation that not only exists, but has a like creating the NFT with the metadata about my house is not hard. There's a bunch of people who have done this recently. Um, I I think it's it's the the legal enforcement around it, right? How do I take a mortgage against an NFT that represents physical property like my house? Well, the mortgage company is gonna wanna know that if I stop paying that mortgage, they actually get to seize the real world asset. And I I think there is underdeveloped intellectual property uh, and, and real world property law uh, that, you know, we've had hundreds of years to develop that, in in the off-chain context and it it's got to make some serious advances for us to really see this start to play out in a meaningful way Um, have you ever heard of a company called jurat j-u-r-a-t 
I don't know them. Tell me about them. So uh, at high level, they are connecting the blockchain to court systems so that you're able to submit the transactions that the malfeasance or the fraud occurred on, right, immediately to the courts uh, through a smart contract. So you wow. can actually take these mortgage payments and the mortgage company would actually be able to get an order from the court without doing anything because a, a basic use case for smart contract, if no pay, then, you know, execute certain action, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so I've been, a buddy of mine works over there too. Uh, I've been following them very closely. All right, I've, I've bookmarked them following our discussion. <laughs> yeah. now I know what I'm going to read about. But I also, the first Web3 conference I actually ever went to uh, was in like February of uh, this year. Um, it was a company called Proppy. Okay. I have heard of them, but I don't know know them well. Yeah, it's, uh, it's uh, Natalia is the founder. She is married to Michael Arrington. Um, and they, what they're basically doing, and I think this is starting to change like that, the, the title companies have a, like a pretty big monopoly. There's, it's like more or less like two or three companies that run all the title searches throughout, uh, the United States. And, and so what they're having to do is one, they've got to get them on board, right? That like, you know, this is a, a different way of doing things, but they're doubling their actions. They're saying, all right, we'll go through the regular title companies, but we're also going to put it on chain. And until these municipalities and these title companies start to recognize that and, these, and, the, and the, the legal system does, they can't really do anything about it, but at least they're running it side by side. It's almost like this proof of massive proof of concept, <laughs> like that this is actually better just until you get comfortable enough to deal with stuff on the blockchain. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I think a lot of that dual face stuff is happening in, in many pockets, right? It's the, it's, I think some people refer to it as web two and a half. It's yeah, like the five. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, you know, it, incrementalism. Like I, I've spent a lot of time in technology. I think most people would be shocked to learn that, like at the back of most transaction processing systems, like banking or you know healthcare claims, there's a big mainframe. That mainframe's been in that architecture probably since the late '70s, early '80s, when it stopped being all you know humans and paper. And so you're talking about technology that's been there for 40, 45 years, runs a core business function. It's hard to get rid of that stuff. It does not happen overnight. Um, and I think if you add up all the mainframe processing, it's roughly equivalent to like all the computing horsepower in the public clouds. So as big as we think about Microsoft, Google, Amazon, it's like, well, yeah, like the, the mainframe horsepower is still 40 years on, hanging on, wow. running a huge layer of like, you know, our day-to-day -day lives, like how you get paid and how you get uh, a healthcare claim paid or how you transfer money between bank accounts. So it, when you think on that, that horizon, it's fair to say like we're very early in crypto and it, and it's not, not just because we want to make more money. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. We're, it's not going to change. Things are not going to change overnight. Um, it, particularly in industries like real estate, where you have hundreds of years of, of uh, patterns of behavior and processes that are, you know, there's a lot of people who benefit and make money from them. Uh, but I, I do think that that trend is uh, inevitable over time, right? We're going to see digitization of these processes. Um, yeah. We just, we just got to hang on long enough to, to see it happen. Well, that's the thing. Yeah, I mean, it's, it takes companies like Chainalysis um, that are providing an air of legitimacy and protection in the space 
in a way that is somewhat familiar to regulatory bodies for this to take the next step because that allows it to legitimize, right? Um, right now, it's, you know, there's probably a few people I could name on Twitter that are, you know, hey, if you have a problem, you know, you know, at the, you know, tag this person and they'll go chase your blockchain for you. Right. Like it's, you know, it's, it's still how it's being done. It's like Batman, right? Like the Batman blockchain. <laughs> it, it, it's true. Uh, and, and some of those folks are really smart and they're yeah. really good at what they do. But and you guys not- would probably hire them if you could. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, the, the trick though is like the scale is off by a couple orders of magnitude, right? Like three people doing this in their spare time, uh, you know, as sort of benevolent actors in the ecosystem does not meet the challenge of the criminal intent that's happening in the ecosystem, right? Like we, we try and analyze and characterize the amount of illicit activity relative to legitimate activity in crypto. Um, and, and so we're about to publish an updated uh, set of stats on this. It'll, it'll start coming out here at the end of December and we'll release content through January and the full report will drop in mid-February. Last year, the numbers uh, shocked a lot of people uh, for, for two reasons, right? Like your average person on the street, you ask them like, hey, how, how much of everything that happens in crypto is, is criminal? And even the most optimistic people can't get past like 50%. Yeah, I was going to say that. <laughs> now, the reality was our, our data estimate, we were able to, to confidently confirm like 0.15%. Wow. 15 people, basis points. <laughs> 15 basis points. And people will take a lot of, you know, there's a lot of critics of like our methodology, which we try and be very open with, um, or, you know, characterize that there's a lot of stuff happening out there that we don't we can't possibly know about. So let's just say that we're off by an order of magnitude. I'll even give you two orders of magnitude and say, hey, maybe it's 10%. Yeah. I'm pretty certain it's not, but let's for the sake of argument, that's still a fifth of where even the most optimistic person on the street thinks it is. It's just not that much. Um, it's have, probably- you ever com- have you ever compared it to fiat currency? Yeah. There's a lot of people who try and make that that comparison, right? And and those statistics are really hard to get because guess what? There's no like shared ledger, right. so you There's rely no shared on ledger and a lot of it's cash. <laughs> yeah, you rely on a lot of like piece together estimates, and you know depending on markets, there's certain markets where there's a lot of visibility into the economy, like the U.S. or Europe. Uh, there's a lot of markets where there's very little visibility, um, but. There, there are organizations that uh, try and study and characterize the scale of both illicit activity and then more specific types of crime like money laundering. And on a dollars basis, it's way bigger. But again, the global economy is way bigger. Yeah. Um, so it, it's hard to draw a meaningful comparison there. I think the net takeaway is uh, that most of crypto is not criminal activity. There is criminal activity in crypto. And so this is the second surprising thing is, you know, last year we saw about $15 billion worth of criminal activity. So and that's 15 including basis like points. scams and hacks and not All just money laundering, child trafficking or anything yeah. like that. Like that's included, but like this is, you know, someone going into, uh, you know, Mount Gox potentially, that, right? And that's right. It stealing. includes, yeah, it includes everything from like the notorious DeFi hacks 
down to you know some of these uh, more egregious like rug pull scams in the NFT market that you've you've probably seen. Been a uh, yeah, <laughs> it's like you're, it's like earning your stripes. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it includes all of that, and and so when you start to think about you know anything measured in billions is big. Fifteen billion is really big, and and it's unacceptable. Like and it it continued this year. Last year we saw a lot of ransomware activity. Yeah. Um, the the ransomware payments have actually come down this year. Uh, I think one of the large factors there has been uh, as a result of um, some of the insurance companies dropping coverage. Uh, so they see the limits. They, I mean, even even the criminals go for the deepest pockets, folks, the, not just plaintiff's attorneys. That's right. That's <laughs> right. It, it's not clear, actually, that the ransom attacks have decreased, but the, the payouts certainly have come down is what our data is showing compared to last year. Um, but this year we saw a huge rise in DeFi hacks. Uh, October alone, I think there were 11 separate incidents that we tracked. Um, and in total, we're, we're now tracking north of $3 billion stolen. Jeez. That's right? crazy. A billion Just in of, December. Uh, $3 billion, uh, sort of year to date through year October. Date. Oh, okay, gotcha, yeah. gotcha, gotcha. Um, but that's just theft, right? So that's mm -hmm. just people hacking uh platforms in, in all sorts of different ways right smart contract manipulation or um you know compromise of like the bridge like one of the big notorious Bridges. ones this year was the axi infinity uh bridge attack um who would have thought well, you couldn't play games to make a living <laughs> <laughs> well i i will tell you who is attempting to make a living on it is the north koreans so of that three billion a billion is uh lazarus group which wow. is yeah the North Korean hacker group. Yeah. <laughs> For people that don't know Lazarus, uh, you may remember the Sony Pictures uh, compromise where all of their email systems were leaked back in 2015 in retaliation for a Seth Rogen movie they put out that kind of made fun of the, the head of state of North Korea. Um, they were also maybe less well-known responsible for hacking the SWIFT banking network and attempted to steal a billion dollars from the Bank of Bangladesh. They only got away with about 90 million through a series of coincidences. But uh, there's a great podcast by a journalist named Jeff White called The Lazarus Group, where he goes into detail and talks all about this, this organization. But they're basically professional hackers trained from uh, you know, high school age. Uh, and, and they are funding a large part of the operation of the North Korean regime, which is amazing. It's a, um, it, listen, when you, you got to find income streams. I, I hate that that is the income stream, but like that's there when there's a will, there's a way. And crypto just happens to be a, uh, slow moving target, if you will. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Space. And so I think, I think that's the thing is that, you know, it's not all criminals. There's a ton of legitimate activity here. The vast majority of it legitimate, but the criminal element is very real. And so you sort of have to, take the space seriously, uh, look at the opportunities, but also be prepared to protect yourself. Whether that's you as an individual investor, you know, the, the NFT project that turns out to be a rug pull, or you're a big financial institution or a tech company kind of like participating in the ecosystem directly in a, in a different scale. It's, uh, it's something you gotta be prepared for. Yeah, and it kind of lends itself to uh, something that, 
uh, I talk about a lot, which is the autonomy factor of, of crypto and, and Web3 and the fact that not a lot of people want that autonomy. I mean, one of the big growing factors of, of the space has been, well, you can, you know, your keys, your wallet, you can own this. Nobody else has it. But like with that comes a certain responsibility. Uh, Spider-Man, thank you. With great power comes great responsibility. I have a five-year-old. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, there, there, there is that level of responsibility that I would say 90, maybe around the same order of magnitude that we were talking about in terms of criminal activity, probably don't want, right? Like when I explained to my mom after I convinced her to buy a Bitcoin, uh, what a cold wallet was, she's like, I don't want to know. Just find me the cold wallet and make sure that somebody knows how to get me the Bitcoin when I need it, right? Like it's just, it's not desirable. <laughs> I, I think uh, th this is one of those things where um, decentralization cannot be the only feature that leads people to crypto. Right. The the list of, of folks who are comfortable with something like self-custody is pretty short. Uh, and, and I think I've seen a lot of people kind of in the wake of the FTX collapse, and, and we've seen this in the data, usually when there's unrest or concern or a big event in crypto, funds flow into centralized exchanges. A lot of those get turned back into fiat or moved into stable coins or, but that the flight to safety is usually toward exchanges. What happened this time after FTX is money left exchanges and going to private personal wallets. Um, and, and obviously that was because all of a sudden people were very concerned about solvency of, of their exchange. And it, you know, to be honest, it's a little bit opaque. Like you don't have uh, good insight into, into that realm. Um, I think our friends at Ledger have have put out some information basically saying they've had the best month in the company's history, right? They've shipped more devices in a month than they had in the year leading up to it. And it's not it. just Tony Fidel designing <laughs> the stacks. <laughs> uh, and, and so I, I get the incentive to, to kind of that personal agency and, and clarity of ownership. But over a, a long period of time, like convenience and simplicity wins every time. Uh, people are like, lazy. People are lazy. The, the opportunity cost is high too. Like I don't change the oil in my car I, and I'm fascinated with cars. Like I, I love the idea of working on cars, but as a hobby, not as a thing that I need to do to the one I drive every day. <laughs> uh, you know, I, um, I, I have done construction in my life, but if I was building a house, I would hire professionals to do it because they think about it all day long and they'll do a much better job. Right. Um, and in many ways, for, for some people, this may end up being a similar number amount of assets, right? Exactly. Exactly. Uh, so why, why not? I like that. I like that analogy a lot. It makes a lot of sense. But I, I do think there's this legitimate conundrum right now. It's like, well, who do you trust? And what's the level of transparency you're going to provide, right? I think a lot of the people who are deeply involved in DeFi right now are, are rightly pointing out like, hey, DeFi is actually the right implementation of the original principle of crypto. It's wholly on chain. It's fully transparent. There is you know, little to no intermediaries, depending on the protocol you're, you're looking at and uh, so, some more technical details there maybe, but, but generally you think you can think about it as intermediary free, which certainly is high contrast to the, the FTX situation or some of the other collapses that we've had this year. Um, I think, I think a lot of people have looked at 
the, you know, I, I, you and I were in this space. We understand that this was a failure of a centralized exchange uh, for the for the very fact that it was very centralized, right? Uh, <laughs> and, and it was not all on chain. That's right. Uh, and it, it, but but I think what the naysayers will say, well, that's an argument of convenience. Of course, you would say like it should be more decentralized. But yeah. in actuality, if you're smart, like if, if you look at a white paper for a DeFi protocol and the DeFi protocol does not allow them to withdraw your funds, right? Like then you should be considered safe because it's coded into the protocol, right? Yeah. Like, unless someone hacks it, which is where Chainalysis and other companies like you come in, yeah. like it's actually a lot safer to have that happen. Um, but yeah. And, and I think then you're sort of back to this usability moment, right? Like. Okay, yes, you and I can probably go look at the solidity code in the smart contract, you know, but I'll be honest with you, like, I wouldn't be able to tell a good smart contract from a bad smart contract reading, you know, side by side. Yeah. Uh, I have no idea. <laughs> exactly. So, so is the answer that you and I need to get uh, to, you know, pro level at solidity development and contract auditing? Because if we do, like, again, we're, we're not going to see a billion people in crypto. We won't even see 100 million people. You know, we're, we're going to be single digit millions, maybe over a long period of time. So I, I think there's a usability convenience factor here. So I, I really like the transparency of DeFi. Mm -hmm. And you're an NFT guy, like all the NFT marketplaces. What's really interesting about a non-fungible token is it's all on chain because I can't just put it in a pool and you know, give somebody, then it becomes fungible in a way. Exactly. So <laughs> if it's so, interchangeable with every other token, that, then that's right. By definition, not non fungible. <laughs> exactly. So, so it, it, it sort of forces the model of on chain. And so you have organizations that are businesses like OpenSea running the biggest NFT marketplace. Um, and they spend a lot of time and money and effort on customer experience and consumer protection. And, you know, it, like the space is far from perfect, right? There's still rug pulls and there's still thefts of NFTs. But I think there's something in there uh, where you have everything's on chain, but you also have a, a good and, and improving customer experience around that on-chain interaction that may be the model. What yeah. do you think it will take for us to get there? Uh, well, I think it's it's already happening, right? Like we've seen a lot of the big exchanges come out and attempt to demonstrate solvency. Now, a little bit of this is self-serving, right? Because they don't want all their customers to withdraw all the funds and quit trading on the platform because profits are made by trading. Yeah. So if you suddenly Switching don't- cost, if you Yeah, will. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, so I think the uh, th there's definitely a little bit of uh, self-preservation inherent in this, but I think, I think uh, most of the reputable exchanges recognize that customers are going to see value in greater transparency. As people uh, on crypto Twitter are all rightly pointing out, like proof of reserves is a good start, but it can't be the final solution. Uh, because if you don't know the other side of that balance sheet, I'm not an accountant, I'm a marketing guy, but even I know you, you need both, both assets and liabilities. Um, and, and for a lot of these businesses, I would be very interested in the operating expense as well, because you may have a ton of assets, but if you know, your monthly burn 
is 10 X your asset base. <laughs> like you're, you're going to become insolvent quickly. So I think there, uh, there's gotta be some work done there. There is also a challenge to that. Like it's very hard to run a business in public, mm-hmm. right? Like you don't necessarily want to share with everyone the real time state of your balance sheet all the time. Yep. Uh, you know, it's, it, I think it's hard for a lot of public companies even to live on the 90 day quarterly earnings cadence. So balancing that argue very much against that. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. There's been a lot of people that argue on these long-term exchanges and kind of getting away from the quarterly cadence because it creates like wrong incentives for managers of companies. I get it. It moves you from a long-term view of the world to a short-term. You got to see that firsthand. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. The change from pivotal being private to public. Exactly. It was, um, you know, we were running the company uh, in in a correct way, um, meaning like audited financials and, you know, high scrutiny from both internal and external stakeholders on the business. So it wasn't like we were skating free. And then we went public and all of a sudden everybody could look at our books and it was like, oh, there's something bad here. Right. Our challenge was we had a very big enterprise focused business. We were selling our average customer ARR was a million dollars when we went public. <laughs> right uh so it, you know you've you've done sales before like um, i can tell you our SaaS contracts uh at my last company were averaged like seventy thousand. Yeah, exactly yeah. and and when you have a seventy thousand dollar contract in a b2b context you tend to do a lot of those like the the duration from starting an opportunity to closing an opportunity is pretty short and once you have volume in a business like that, you tend to get high predictability. Like you, you understand how to instrument the business and you can sort of guess, like given a pipeline that looks like this at this point in the quarter, I sort of know where I'm going to finish. And then I can apply that out into future quarters and I get lots of visibility. Pivotal was doing massive deals. Our biggest customers were paying us 15, $20 million a year and growing. Um, and so we had a lot of unpredictability in the business. Didn't, it didn't mean that the business was bad or failing. Like we were, I think our customers would argue we were hugely impactful to their organizations and delivered a ton of value. And I can imagine like, the switching costs in that context were probably pretty high too. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> but, but Retention but, matters more than anything. <laughs> that, and we had incredibly high uh, net retention as well, right? So our NRR is the, the typical statistic there. It was great. But we did not have great predictability and growth because the deal cycles were long. And so it was hard to guess, you know, Hey, is this closing on December 31st or January 15th? How how does that compare to Chainalysis? Are you, uh, are you spending a lot more time on new customer acquisition versus, uh, growth? Yeah. Anything that you're willing to share? I'd I'd be interested. Yeah. Yeah, so so I joined the company uh, January of last year. So I'm I'm sort of uh, in my eighth quarter, if you will. Nice. Um, right after and, the people sale, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that happened, and I had no idea what was going on. I was like, <laughs> "What is a beeple, and why did someone give him sixty nine million dollars <laughs> for a bunch I, of pictures?" <laughs> I had I had no idea. I had to. I immediately was like, "Wait, what's an NFT? A non fungible? Okay, I think I know what that means, but like, what does it actually mean in this context?" And yeah. uh, that led me down a whole rabbit hole that that took a couple days to dig out of. But um, at that point in time, we had uh, just over three hundred customers when I joined. We just passed through the thousand customer mark. 
we're adding a couple hundred a quarter. So the business dynamic is very different. Uh, we we have uh, you know a handful of, of multi million dollar customers at the very top ends or most mature, largest adopters of our technology. But we also have entry point into the portfolio that's you know low tens of thousands of dollars, and and that land and expand model um, and just a, a higher diversity of clients where we can kind of go to the big enterprise on one end and down to the small early stage startup that's two or three people uh, you know that maybe are anonymous and only communicate via discord handles like <laughs> we we can service both ends of that spectrum which is a lot of fun right and, and it makes for a I would say it makes my job a little bit easier in terms of thinking about business growth how do we resource you know how do we think about cost of acquisition? and lifetime value um it it's definitely i'm enjoying it given the past context at pivotal let's put it that way yeah it seems like you almost have a balance right where yeah. where you have the predictability of growth and then you can balance that with the fact that you could grow the u.s government to a yeah. massive amount um, yeah. or other like large enterprises yeah i mean we do a lot of work with international government as well and so we um in some ways, our business is insulated from asset prices. Like we don't have a token. Uh, we're we're a software company. Like if if you sat in one of our board meetings or I showed you the board deck, it would uh, look like probably any other software as a service company that that you've looked at in the last five years. In terms of the core metrics that we talk about and how we think about um, growth and scale and you know headwinds and tailwinds in the business. It, it just happens that our technology is highly applicable to the crypto ecosystem, which for me coming into it was really nice. Because when I first got the call from the recruiter uh, who said, hey, you should look at this company, Chainalysis. Like I, I was a, a little bit skeptical on the industry like because I was an outsider and my I built my career around being a, an expert. And I was like, I don't know anything about this domain. Like, you know, I... I read headlines like I'm in tech, so I'm curious yeah. about things like blockchain and smart contracts. Uh, but all I really know is like, you know, price goes up, price goes down, somebody goes to jail. Like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one of my closing questions is how do you describe Web3? Price goes up, price goes down, somebody goes to jail. <laughs> That that can't be the pull quote. We can't we can't promote that one on social media. Well, no, uh, that'll just be TikTok. Don't worry about it. <laughs> there you go. Fit for platform. That's yeah, perfect. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I noticed in my research that um, you tend to you've been. I feel like since you've come to Chainalysis, you've started to build a little bit more of your personal brand. And I don't know if that's because you started the podcast or not. Yeah. Is that something that you've been doing consciously? How do you think about personal brand and being uh, an executive uh, yeah. at a company? I, I actually try not to think a lot about my personal brand. Like um, I, I enjoy standing in front of a room full of people or going to a small meeting and talk, doing what we're doing right now, talking about mm -hmm. the industry, talking about the technology. I enjoy the learning of it. I enjoy trying to help other people learn along with me. Um, but I've, I've never felt the need to be self-promotional. Like the way that I've uh, used Twitter over the last decade is mostly in a consumption rather than in a promotion mode. And even when I am posting things, there's often a, 
behind the post motivation, which is like, can I get people to engage on this idea or this concept? Does it resonate or does it fall flat? Mm -hmm. It's almost like a testing platform for me. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and interestingly, the podcast, uh, I was a little bit skeptical on even doing a podcast. It's kind of a funny story. So the team, I've got a great, great team here at Chainalysis and we were having a discussion at the end of last year, talking about opportunities and things that we wanted to maybe work on in the coming year. And uh, the team's like, hey, we should do a podcast. And and you've probably thought about this a lot uh, as well. Like I, I kind of just went and browsed through Spotify and I was like, man, there's a billion crypto related podcasts. And there's some really, really good ones. Um, do we, Does the world need a billion and one crypto podcasts? Think about it every day. <laughs> I feel like I'm producing into an abyss sometimes. <laughs> and and I, um, I I actually really challenged the team on it. I, I said, hey, you know, we've got to, if, if we can't do something that's unique and differentiated, like it can't just be another news podcast. And, you know, like Laura Shin at, at Unchained and Frank Shaparo at The Scoop, who are two that I follow kind of religiously, like they do a great job of, the story of the week or the story of the month. Um, and so the team actually, you know, really uh, buckled down and thought about a concept and, and kind of sold me on the idea. And I was like, okay, okay, we'll give it a try. Nowhere in this pitch did they mention, and Ian, you're the host. <laughs> nice job, team. We're yeah. just backdoor Ian. <laughs> to totally. The, the, the thing, I mean, this was probably took place over a series of like four it's to six weeks. It's the crypto weeks. way, Ian. We come in the back door. <laughs> four to six weeks of talking about this thing. No one said, uh, Ian, you're, you're going to host. So when they finally brought that to me, I said yes to doing the podcast. I was like, really? I've got to host this thing? I was wondering too, like, how do you have time for this? <laughs> the first couple episodes were... Uh, super intimidating. And, and I still find myself uh, with certain types of guests where I'm nervous going into it, which is a rare thing for me having a conversation with somebody, which is what a podcast is to actually get nervous. But uh, we had um, Jeff White, who I mentioned earlier on the podcast. Uh, we had a guy named Alistair McCready, who's the Southeast Asia editor for Vice News on the podcast. Those guys are legitimate journalists, right? Like this is a side side gig for me doing public key and uh and so it, to me it's like oh i, I want to show up professionally and ask good questions that are thoughtful and actually one of the best compliments i've gotten was from alistair after we finished taping he's like yeah so what's your background do you like do you do this podcast thing professionally and i was like alistair you're like the 12th episode we've recorded <laughs> I mean, yeah, exactly. I've been professionally for like three weeks yeah know? exactly <laughs> exactly 12 hours worth of professional podcasting experience and he's like wow you're really good at it um so yeah it's and it's become a thing where now people are recognizing me so it's very strange to your self-promotion concept where i was out at money 2020 in las vegas a couple of weeks ago like huge you know financial industry show uh, at the Venetian out there. And I had somebody walk up to me and go, Hey, you're the, you're the host of public key, not the CMO of chain analysis. <laughs> you're the host of public key podcast. Yeah. Yeah. And they got all excited. They're like, I love the podcast. And I was like, that is so cool. 
Um, Maybe that'll be my tagline instead of CMO chain analysis. It'll be host of public key. That's yes, right. I got more clicks. Yes. Yes. Uh, so, so I'm, uh, yeah, it's, it's a very interesting uh, situation for me. Who's never been self-promotional to suddenly um, my team's constantly kind of prodding me. They're like, Ian, you need to post more stuff. I'm on TikTok now. You're telling me. <laughs> Uh, at least you got a team, man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm over here like editing videos, learning how to do captions. I've got my dev friends teaching me the the quickest way to 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 mix these videos because the podcast releasing is not enough, mm -mm. right? Um, though the one interesting thing that I have noticed because I have actually pitched a few people on like a podcast in residence idea because I'm trying to just basically lean into the thing that gives me the most energy, which is this. Yeah. Um, people can the, the the one thing that I noticed with talking to these companies is that there's the outward marketing side of it, which is like, hey, you get to learn all about the industry and all these people that I happen to talk to actually help explain it better, right? And, and, and this is a highly technical industry and you need that. But then also internally, because there's so few people that are crypto native, right? And your company is growing really fast. You can start to use these podcasts to educate people. And yeah. I'm, I'm sure you've thought about this, but like that is like a really big use case for people. Um, like, uh, uh, for instance, on uh, outside of chain analysis is, uh, have you ever heard of a company called endowment? No. Okay. So they do on chain donor advised funds. Um, and I didn't know what a donor advised fund was, right? Like, like, so, do you know what it is? I have no idea. I've never okay, heard so of it before. Donor advised fund is a way for you to donate uh, capital gains bearing assets directly to a charity without incurring any of the taxes. Oh, awesome. Uh, okay. So if you like made a bunch of money on Pivotal stock and you wanted to give it to charity, you could give it to a donor advised fund. You don't have to pay the capital gains for selling it. The nonprofit can actually sell it and then take 100% of your donation. Amazing. So it's a win-win for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. And what they realized with all these crypto gains is there was a large demand for people that made a lot of money to be able to donate to charity without incurring the capital gains tax. Yeah. Um, now I've explained that to you. You've got the concept, but like most people that go and work there probably don't know that. Right. <laughs> you know, like they aren't walking like, yeah, DAFs, man, you know, like, um, and so there was like this big need uh, when we were talking for some way to disseminate that information, both externally and internally. Yep. So that your new hires had an idea. And look, a lot of people, this is how they consume content now. Yeah. Uh, whether it's audible or podcasts through uh, various platforms. So, yeah. Totally. We, I, I've had uh, probably a dozen candidates in the last few months who have come in an interview cycle with me and, and got on and said, hey, Ian, I've, I've been listening to the podcast. I love the episode with so-and-so. And now some of those people we've hired and I still get messages like, Ian, what's the episode this week? Who's coming on? Like they're <laughs> You're like, whoa, dude, <laughs> this is not where I want to be spending my time for Slack messages. <laughs> uh, so it is. I, I like, I think we actually get a huge internal uh, employee benefit um, off of doing the podcast. Awesome. Um, and personally for me, the reason why I car carve out time for it is because I'm constantly learning in this space. Like, I, so I explain to people who are coming from the outside that it sounds kind of hokey, but I wake up every day and I learn about stuff that I didn't know existed yesterday. I mean, you just gave me one, right? Like that happens every day in crypto. And, you know, what I've realized with the podcast is instead of me just kind of researching down crypto Twitter rabbit hole or 
GitHub repository or some website, I can do it live on video and then share that with a much larger audience. And, and so I can do some of the work for them. I get to learn what I'm interested in, but I get to, to share that with a wider audience, hopefully help some people out. Yeah, no, I mean, it's the, the huge passion part of this for me as well is I just like to learn about people. Yeah. And, and I think that's why at least my guests have a good experience is because I'm not, there's no like, I mean, I, I sent you the, the pre-recording email. It's like, here's like five general things, but like, we're going to go on a tangent. And we did for like yeah. 75% of the episode, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, and it's, it's just about like, are you genuinely interested in what your guest has to offer? Otherwise it's just going to come off. I don't know. I kind of, I kind of think about it when, <laughs> when you think about like inexperienced AEs on a call and they're, or, or, or SDRs and they're like, where's my script? Okay. Um, <laughs> what do you, do you feel pain points? <laughs> are there pain points in what you're doing? Oh, we can solve those pain points. Hold on. Here's a use case. Use case. Hold on. <laughs> you know, testimonial. Um, so it's like. <laughs> I'm, I'm dying of laughter because I'm sure that that uh, I've, I've got a couple people in my team who are probably brand new to the role uh, that have made calls like that. Uh, hopefully not too many, but, oh, but I'm probably responsible. Like that. I'm sure you did too. When you first started as an SDR, I mean, you're just like, uh, 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 software, uh, yeah. <laughs> had no, no idea what I was talking about. Uh, but that, at least, Hey, I, I'm, I envy you for coming up in the, the early two thousands in this. Um, uh, I don't envy you, I should say, uh, because at least we had the tech stack, yeah. right? We were at Marquette. I was at Marketo. We had Salesforce. We had all this like content marketing that was tracking over time to start a relevant conversation with somebody. Um, so yeah, I can only imagine what it was like pre-SAS. <laughs> uh, it was it was a lot of trying to figure out how do I get somebody's phone number? Like, <laughs> there's no um, Zoom info or Discover no. Org, whatever they're calling no, them. I, I think we had something called Hoover's, Hoover's. which would get you like a main a main number, maybe sometimes depending on who you're trying to get a hold of. And, uh, you know, occasionally contacts would get added to that. So you might have like one or two contacts out of the organization, but like LinkedIn didn't exist. It was a professional network where you could, you know, send somebody a direct message. Like, uh, yeah, the, you know, even email was sort of like, a, it was a thing people had, but it was, um, it was not easy to get people's email addresses and outreach to them at that point in time, not in the business context. Yeah, there was no Gmail. <laughs> None of that. Um, well, um, we are nearing our time. Uh, and there is two closing questions that I have, but also one burning question. Uh, you are a chief marketing officer for a massive on-chain company in a way, right? I get it software, but like a massive Web3 company, I should say. What... <laughs> What is, how has your philosophy changed from when you came in and you're like, wait, do I know enough about this to now? And what do you consider like the current state of like the marketing ecosystem for, for the industry? Yeah, it's interesting. One of the reasons why I got comfortable as I was going through the interview process with coming to Chainalysis was I, once I realized that we were a software business. I was like, okay, well, I understand software businesses. I worked at a bunch of different places. I, I the mechanics of how you go to market uh, and how you grow an organization actually hold true. 
So that was one thing that was really important. But Chainalysis has a bunch of unique attributes to uh, to our business that totally different than any place I've been. The probably the biggest, most relevant one is we have information that nobody else has. And I'm not talking about an attribution of a wallet. I'm talking about a narrative of what's actually happening on chain. Like we talked a lot earlier about some of these statistics about crime that are just shocking to people. It's totally different than what they expect. Um, and, and so I actually have a team of data scientists, experts in their field in my marketing organization who full-time focus on research to produce the content that, that comes out of our organization. And that, um, that engine is really unique in the tech industry. Most comms people who work in tech will tell you that the media generally has no interest in talking to them, right? If, if you're not Google or Apple and you put out a blog or a Facebook, nobody reads it. <laughs> you know, that, that blog, that press release, it goes unread. Um, and it doesn't even, you know, you often think, oh, we're a mission-driven company, we're changing the world. The reality is you're building like a database, right? Nobody cares about your database. Um, I'm so sorry to say that. Here, what we found is the content is hugely engaging and there's such an appetite from mainstream media all the way down to the individual, you know, NFT or, or crypto investor to understand what's going on. Um, and, and we are lucky enough to, to play a big role in helping, uh, you know, shine a light and give some explanation to what's happening there. And that, uh, that drives our entire marketing effort and activity. It's all about amplifying that information and, and making it, uh, consumable by, by audiences out there. I love that. It's, it, you know, one of the common themes that I come across is the fact that we're sitting on this treasure trove of intent data, uh, in the blockchain, mm -hmm. um, that, you know, is, is nobody's really tapped into. It sounds like it's exactly what you're tapping into and you're seeing a lot of success with it yeah. because it's, it's truth, right? Like this is, this is, this is the truth that is happening on chain. There's not, this isn't something that's debatable, whether this wallet transferred this to another wallet, right? It, it, it's right there, uh, in the code for you to see. So. That's right. You got That's it. Awesome. Well, my two closing questions are uh, first, how do you describe Web3? <laughs> and we'll try not to use what we used earlier. <laughs> I, I, honestly, I'm, I'm often uh, allergic to, to these kind of like buzzword industry terms that, that provide big umbrella. But there is a lot of utility in them, right? Like you say Web3, I say Web3. We generally know we're talking about the same thing. And it, it, this one in particular has gained a lot of ground. I think as people have tried to rebrand the technology away from crypto, because crypto carries with it a lot of negative implications, right? For a lot of people, crypto is the thing you use to buy drugs on the internet. Like that's kind of their, uh, the mental space they go to and you have to back them out of that. So I think Web3 as a term um, is an attempt at a gentle rebrand that gets people excited. I do also think there there's some interesting uh, demarcations that get packed into that, right? Which is a look back at the the Web One, which was largely read only, to Web Two, which was kind of creator driven. Web Three becomes creator owned in theory. Uh, that that narrative is like very popular. I um, I will say that I don't think that that is yet true in practice in a widespread way. 
like we've seen some amazing teams do some really successful things like the yoga labs folks is kind of amazing what they've built. Um, but even the, the like royalties argument that's happening right now on a lot of the NFT marketplace platforms would suggest that it is not quite entirely uh, self-ownership and, and profit from your work in, in the universe of Web3 yet. So I think that's a, there's some truth there, but it's not entirely yet accurate. Maybe, maybe it will in, in the future. Um, but I do think that uh, the, the core of it for me actually comes down to this idea of um, something we touched on earlier, which is, which is all about controlling your identity as you exist across a series of applications. Because the thing that's actually changed over the 20 plus years I've been in tech is, you know, I'm Ian Andrews in the real world. I have a passport, a driver's license, and a bank account. Online, I, I don't have a bunch of personas, but many people do where they exist in the world of video games in one way, and they exist on TikTok in another way, and Instagram or OnlyFans or whatever it is. You know, all of these are just as legitimate as my passport, driver's license, documented identity. Um, and I think that uh, the implication of that legitimizing of these online personas or identities as distinct um, is really what's interesting and happening in Web3 that I, I think people who aren't into the financial aspects of crypto should be getting excited about. And I think if you look at things like developer DAO um, or friends with benefits, which are probably the two most successful kind of communities that have really nothing to do with crypto as a financial instrument, um, are are very interesting in this regard. Uh, it's almost like taking the the professional and trade association organizations and launching them into a kind of modern digital landscape. Um, and so I, to me, that's the biggest change that's really happening driven driven by Web3, particularly if we're talking above the, the core kind of underlying technology area. I love that. God, that's one of the best answers I've gotten, I have to say. <laughs> Seriously, it's like it's it's very well articulated. I think a lot of people try to say that, but they can't quite articulate it that way. So thanks for sharing that. You bet. I've been uh, chasing it for, for months now, so I'm glad it <laughs> resonated a little bit. There you go. Proof, proof of work. Um, so <laughs> not, not in the term of art sense. Uh, so the final question is forward looking. Um, where do you see yourself and the industry uh, in the next six to 12 months? Where do you see yourself in the industry in the next five to 10 years? And I know that you don't focus a lot on yourself and personal brand. So feel free to, to substitute chain analysis if that's a, a more appropriate answer. Yeah, I, I laughed when you sent me this question. I'll be honest, five to 10 years. I've been in crypto two years and it feels like five to 10 years. Uh, it's really hard. Like, I'm generally, I try and stay away from, from future predictions because it's, uh, if I was good at predicting things, I, I would probably be retired on the beach someplace. But, uh, uh, but I think in particular in crypto, it moves so fast. Uh, I mean, you think about where we were this time last year, we were at all time market highs for Bitcoin and Ethereum. You know, Solana appeared to be the the next like major technical innovation happening in the in the space. Um, and now where where do we sit? Right. It's uh, that's 12 months. Yeah. One so, year. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's one year. Um, and it, it feels like that's, you know, 
uh, sort of the the dot com bust of two thousand to the financial crisis in two thousand and eight. Like we've packed all that. It's, as some people like to say, we've speed run that <laughs> over the last twelve months. Um, and, and so I I think uh, we spend a lot of time thinking about uh, kind of regulatory climate. Like how do we grow the ecosystem through legitimacy? That's really the core mission of what Chainalysis is doing. And a big part of that is getting governments comfortable with the legitimacy of cryptocurrency. Um, you know, that, that may range from just like reasonable tax structure, uh, that may be, um, you know, better kind of asset and property law, it may be uh, more uh, realistic or reasonable regulation of businesses that are touching digital assets. So not no regulation, but not so onerous that it sort of prevents anyone from being able to realistically start a business and be successful in the space. Um, we are starting to see good progress happening on that. Like what Europe has now just finalized that's called MICA or MICA as my European colleagues refer to it, the, the, the soft I pronunciation. Um, it, it puts in place, I think, what will end up likely being the model adopted in other jurisdictions around the world. I'm hoping the U.S. kind of follows suit there. Uh, they've still got some work to do because they intentionally tabled things like NFTs and DeFi out of this uh, first first pass in order to just make progress, which is a totally legitimate, reasonable thing to do. Um, the DeFi question is a really hard one to tackle. Uh, and, you know, I'm I'm anticipating good things happening around that over the next year. So that, and I think if we, if we get that in place, we will see uh, sort of a springtime of um, a, a blooming, if you will, of crypto businesses, not just, you know, another 10 or 20 like major exchanges, but actually people who are doing much more interesting things than enabling, you know, leverage speculation on tokens. Um, because right now it's very hard for for a business that exists outside of crypto to even start accepting crypto. Like holding it on your balance sheet in the U.S. is a tax nightmare. It's hard to get insurance too. It absolutely. Um, so so there's all these things that uh, are kind of below the surface, not technical, but are very critical if you're a if you're a operating as a business. Um, to begin to touch crypto. And so if we can drive through some agreement and standardization on what the rules look like and and people get on board with it, I think that then drives up the use cases and applications. It drives up the utility, which will drive more people into the space, which will increase investment. And I, I feel like we're on the cusp of that happening. And I actually think the silver lining on some of the FTX stuff is it's going to force the uh, the regulatory and legislative bodies in the United States to take action. That's um, what we need. They've got to be the leaders. I, it, it's the biggest economy in the world. Like if, yeah. if we can't do it right here and it's where most of the, the investment is coming from a venture capital perspective, it's where many of the companies are being founded that are working hard in the space. Like it's gotta, it's gotta get sorted. Um, so I'm, I'm looking forward, hopeful, that you know the the benefit out of the disaster that is FTX ends up being uh, some good rules get put in place that that allow the ecosystem to bloom. Awesome. Well, thank you for the answer. I, it was uh, it's very very clearly uh, articulates where the industry needs to be 
right in order to survive and there are a lot of hurdles that we have to go through but you know we got to give regulatory regulators a hug man <laughs> we, we can't just fight them off our whole lives we're not going full anarchist here as much as i i buy into the balaji uh network state idea um this it's it's not going to happen tomorrow right no, uh, I I think there is some value to creating aut autonomous crypto-based, uh, you know, groups of people, societies. Um, but there, we have to realize that we're operating within the confines of already established governments and societies, and we need them to to kind of guide us as to how we can participate in a safe way. At the end of the day, you can't take humans completely out of the system, right? Right, because yeah. even if we say, well, the the system's autonomous, it's code, code is law. Like all these phrases are very popular in the space. Like cryptographica. <laughs> and I'm, and I, I always look at that a little bit, uh, you know, questioning because until uh, some of these uh, AI platforms get a little bit better, it's humans writing the code. So all the flaws. And it's been apparent in all these flaws. <laughs> all the flaws that we ascribe to humanity where we're trying to push it to the machines, uh, the machines inherit the flaws. Like the, um, and they and they do it often in in hidden or uncertain ways. So I, I don't think it's as easy as just saying, "Oh, uh, autonomous systems will will take care of it." Like you actually have to tackle the the human, or as my my friends like to call the meatware side <laughs> of the problem. <laughs> I think I have a title for the episode. <laughs> <laughs> meatware. That's right. That's right. Meat with, with the host of the public podcast. <laughs> There you go. That's going to draw a huge audience. I can feel it. <laughs> well, I appreciate your time, Ian. This has been definitely one of the both more informative and entertaining episodes that I've done. So thank you. Hey, I enjoyed it. You're a great host. Thanks for tuning in to Web3 with me. If you enjoyed the show and want to help us grow, please hit the subscribe button on YouTube or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. If you want to connect with me personally, you can find me on Twitter at Zach underscore French underscore.